Please give your attention to God's word. It is holy, it is powerful, it'll change your life. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as, sen- as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? My wife and I, a couple months ago, visited Niagara Falls, and I hadn't been there for decades. And I had a chance to see some of the very popular sites there that I hadn't seen before. They have some new pathways at Niagara Falls on the American side that will take you right to the ledge of the falls. And there actually was a pathway that took us to a place where we had that massive volumes of water flowing over the edge right next to us on both sides while we stood on the path with the fence looking over the ledge. They also have a place that I'm sure many of you have been to called Cave of the Winds. I had never been there before. And basically, it's a walkway that takes you down to the base of the falls and puts you right beside where the water, all those massive volumes of water are hitting the rocks at the base of the falls, and it splashes off the rocks and hits you standing there on the walkway like about 10 fire hoses. We also had a chance, and the first time I ever had a chance to ride on the Maid of the Mist, which is that boat that takes you as close as possible to the foot of the falls And you're in all the, again, all the water coming against you with all that force. And it's just overwhelming as you realize how powerful and how huge the volumes of water are that are falling there. The goal of all those attractions is to get you as close as possible to that awesome power and all that danger and to keep you relatively safe. That's the goal, is to get you as close as possible to experiencing the power and the danger. Well, too often we approach sin the same way. We approach that power and that danger that is in sin, not wanting to get caught up in it, not wanting to be destroyed by it, but wanting to get as close to it as we can. We toy with it. We flirt with temptation. Living that way is always dangerous and foolish. But the Apostle Paul seems to single out some sins that are especially powerful in our lives and especially dangerous. And he exhorts us to flee from those sins. Back in chapter 6, verse 18, 
he told the Corinthian Christians there, flee from sexual immorality. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.11 to flee from the love of money and all the sins that it produces in our lives. Again, he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, to flee youthful passions. And of course, here at the beginning of the passage we read this morning, verse 14, he tells the Corinthian Christians, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. When it comes to idolatry, don't see how close you can get to it. Run the other direction. Run away. You'll notice that his urgency in saying this to the Corinthian Christians is driven by his love for them. He says, my beloved, flee from idolatry. It's the love of a spiritual parent to a spiritual child when you're watching that child walk into danger. Run away. I mean, think about it. We don't say to our children or our grandchildren, don't step over the edge of that cliff. That's not what we say. We say, stay far away from the edge of that cliff. We don't say to children around a campfire, don't put your hand in the fire. That's not what we say. We say, stay away from the fire. We don't say to our children, don't pet the bear in the backyard. We say, stay in the house. Stay far away because of the power and the danger. Well, Paul saw these Corinthian Christians walking very close, if not crossing the line, into idolatry. The first two commandments of the Ten Commandments that summarize all of God's will for our lives, the first two of them, these are the commandments that the Corinthian Christians were toying with. The ones that say, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself a carved image, you shall not bow down to them. This section of 1 Corinthians started back in chapter 8, where Paul, remember, was answering a question that was sent to him from the Christians in the church in Corinth, because they had a dispute among themselves. There was a big question about meat that had been offered in a pagan temple as a sacrifice to a, an idol, a pagan god, if, is that meat unacceptable for Christians to eat? And that was what they were arguing about. And Paul dealt with that back in chapter 8. And you remember his solution was that, is that, that there's nothing wrong with the meat itself. You can eat the meat, but don't cause your weaker brother to stumble by seeing you eat the meat when he thinks it's wrong to eat the meat. And that was the concern back in chapter 8. But in the midst of dealing with it, Paul alluded to the fact that some of these Corinthian Christians were not just eating the meat, but they were actually attending the feasts at the pagan temples that took place after the sacrifices had been offered to the idols. And so Paul, he, he alluded to it, but didn't address it directly back in chapter 8. But now here, as he begins to wind up his teaching on idols, he addresses the core issue. First of all, you have to understand that these meals that took place in the pagan temples, these were a big part of that culture. It was a pagan culture. Idols were everywhere. Pagan temples were everywhere. And these fellowship meals that took place after idol worship, after sacrifices to idols and worship to false gods, these fellowship meals were a big part of 
the social life of people. So your family members, your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers would all be attending these feasts. And so if you refused to go to the feast, you'd pay a big price socially. You would be an outcast. You'd be unpopular. Well, last week at the beginning of chapter 10, Paul began to deal with this directly by reminding the Corinthian Christians about the Israelites in the wilderness and how hundreds of thousands of those Israelites died in the wilderness under God's judgment because of the sin of idolatry, the sin of grumbling, the sin of testing God. He reminds them of that history because these Christians were being in danger of committing the same type of sin. What Paul is saying to them in those first 13 verses is, we worship this same God. He may not manifest his wrath against idolatry in the same way as he did in the Old Testament, but he's the same God. He still detests it just as much. And remember last week his message, this is a message to the church. He's not preaching to the pagans out in the street. He's preaching, teaching the church. And his message to those Christians is that being baptized, remember, being baptized and being members of the visible church and receiving the Lord's Supper regularly was no guarantee that you wouldn't fall away. That we know who the elect of God are, those who've chosen of God, because they persevere. And that they do ultimately reject idolatry. That's how we know who they are. And so Paul is saying, flee from idolatry. But he doesn't just say flee. He gives reasons. Why should we flee idolatry? Why should we give it such a wide berth in our life? In verse 15, Paul says, I speak to as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. When our children are small, and we have rules for them. We know that often when they're very small, we can't reason with them. You can't say don't do this or do that and then have a long conversation with them about why they should do it or not do it. It doesn't get anywhere, does it? Because they're not able to understand. And so what you end up saying is when, when they say, Mommy, Daddy, can I have another cookie? Or Mommy or Daddy, can I stay up for a while longer? You say no. And if they challenge you, you might try to reason with them, but eventually what you end up saying is, no, because I said so. Because you need to respect our authority. And even if you don't understand why, you need to do the right thing, and you need to trust us that this is the right thing. God's word could do that, but it rarely does that. Rarely does God say, do this or don't do this, because I said so. It's one thing I love about the word of God is that it wants us to grow up from spiritual immaturity into spiritual maturity. And spiritual maturity is knowing God's rules, but understanding from God's perspective, as he's revealed it to us in his word, why we are to obey his rules. Why this is for our good. Why this is for our safety. Why this is for his glory. Why we should want it. And as we come to understand the reasons behind the rules, We begin to want to keep the rules, and that's spiritual maturity. And so Paul does the same thing here. He says, I want you to hear my reasons for fleeing idolatry. Why was it wrong? First of all, Paul says, you need to consider the nature of the meal. You're wanting to have a fellowship meal with pagans 
that is associated with idol worship. I want you to consider the nature of the meal. In verse 16, what he does is he compares the pagan fellowship meal that they were participating in with the Christian fellowship meal that was ordained by Jesus Christ, the Lord's Supper. Verse 16 again says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? The cup of blessing and the bread that we break, these are scriptural phrases. These are phrases that were used in the Lord's Supper. That's what he's referring to, that when we eat the bread and we drink the cup in worship before the Lord, think about what we're doing. He says that we participate or we share in the blood and the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's referring to, the word there is koinonia, it's that very familiar Greek word that is used all through the New Testament by New Testament writers to indicate the deep, special fellowship that we have with God and each other because of the work of Christ on the cross. Koinonia, participation, fellowship, sharing in these things together. And he speaks of two aspects of our fellowship. The first aspect is the vertical fellowship that we have with God when we gather around the table to celebrate the Lord's Supper. When we do that, we're sharing in the body and blood of Christ. It's a celebration of our mystical union with Christ. That we are one with Christ in a supernatural, deep way that is beyond really our understanding. And not only do we express that union with Christ that we have by faith, but we actually strengthen that bond that we have with Christ when we take the Lord's Supper rightly by faith. He is the spiritual host of the meal. And we commune with him by receiving the bread and the cup. But there's also a horizontal fellowship around the Lord's table that Paul refers to in verse 17. He says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. That because we are united with Christ, we are one with Christ in the depths of our soul, what that means is that we also are united in the depths of our soul with all other true believers. And that's a deep spiritual, supernatural bond that, again, is beyond our understanding. And he alludes to that. And he expands upon it beautifully. We'll get to chapter 12 in a number of weeks. But let me just pull a couple of verses out of chapter 12 where he talks about this this oneness that we have in Christ as the body of Christ. He says, for just as the body is one, and has many members, and all the members of the body, although many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of the one spirit. That's what we celebrate at the Lord's table. It's unfortunate that our modern communion practices kind of obscure it. Today in the church we hand out individual pieces of bread and individual cups and we deliver them to individuals sitting in individual seats. But that's not the way it was in the beginning. In the beginning, it was a real meal around the table. And there is a, there's a picture of our unity in Christ as we sit facing one another around the table that's kind of lost in our modern practices. There's a celebration of our oneness in Christ that just isn't as clear. And I understand why we do it, for pragmatic and sanitary reasons, to be quite honest. But it's a shame that we don't sit around one table and share one loaf. Because that's what Paul's alluding to. It's a picture 
of our oneness in Christ. And that's what we celebrate. It's a profoundly spiritual event where we experience fellowship with our creator, our redeemer, and our provider. And we celebrate deep fellowship with one another. In verse 18, Paul, interestingly, he goes back to the Old Testament rituals, the sacrifices. Those are the sacrifices, the animal sacrifices, that pointed forward to Christ's sacrifice and pointed forward to the meaning of the Lord's Supper that we celebrate regularly. And he says, are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Think back to these Old Testament worship services. You couldn't approach this holy God without having blood shed to atone for your sin. And so you offered a blood sacrifice, an animal sacrifice. You also offered other kinds of food sacrifices as thank offerings and other kinds of offerings. And then the priest would offer up the sacrifice, and then he would take the blood of the sacrifice, he would present it as showing that atonement had been made, and that represents the vertical fellowship you have with God. It's been reconciled through the blood of the this vicarious sacrifice. But then God's people would gather around and they would eat from what is left of the animal sacrifices, the thank offerings, the food offerings. They would eat together in the language of the Old Testament before the Lord. And Paul says that points forward to our communion in Christ. That was a shadow of the reality that we experienced in Christ. What he's pointing out here What he wants the Corinthians to consider here is how unthinkable would it be to have a pagan, an unbeliever, someone who doesn't understand or accept the meaning of Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection, how unthinkable and reprehensible in the sight of God would be to have them partaking of the meal with us. It would be wrong. And Paul actually emphasizes that when we get to chapter 11, He says, beginning in verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. They were experiencing actual Old Testament-like manifestations of God's judgment because they were not partaking of the Lord's Supper correctly because they weren't discerning the body of the Lord in the Supper. I know that some people take offense when we fence the table, as we say in the PCA, when we give a very clear warning before we serve the Lord's Supper that this is for those who truly are believers in Jesus Christ. That this is for those who are members in Bible-believing churches because they've made public profession of faith, have identified themselves as, as believers, and have been brought into the church. This is who the meal is for. And we sternly warn those who do not believe to not partake. That's not being judgmental. That's protecting them from God's judgment. And it's protecting the purity of the table and its meaning. And so Paul says, just as it's unthinkable that an unbeliever would share in our fellowship meal, it should be just as unthinkable that you as a Christian would share in the fellowship meal of a pagan idol. Just as unthinkable that you would participate, no matter how you've justified it in your minds, Corinthians. Having mentioned Christ as the host of the spiritual meal, then Paul goes on to say, don't only think about the nature of the meal, what's happening as we share that meal, but think about the spiritual presence behind the meal. Verse 19, Paul clarifies that he doesn't mean to imply by what he's saying that 
the, these false gods, are, that there's any reality to them whatsoever. He's not meaning to imply that, that there really are other gods besides the one true God. That's not what he's saying. Or that these idols that people are worshiping are anything more than chunks of wood or metal or stone. And he's not intending to imply that the meat, as he made clear back in chapter 8, that the meat that has been offered in a sacrifice to the idol is anything different than just meat. But, he says, there is a profound danger and a profound power behind these pagan fellowship meals. And it's demonic. He intends to shock the Corinthians with his statement in verse 20. No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. That's what he wants these Christians who are flirting with the sin of idolatry to understand. That this worship, that these people have bound themselves unknowingly, in vast majority of the cases, to demonic powers which are real, which are opposed to Christ, which are opposed to the kingdom of God, and seeking to devour and destroy. You know, Paul is actually quoting the Song of Moses. At the end of Moses' life, he wrote a poem that uh, summarized his reflections upon what happened during his time as a mediator of the Old Covenant. And listen to these verses. He's going to refer to Jeshurun, which is another name for the Israelites in the wilderness. He says, but Jeshurun, this is from Deuteronomy 32, verse 15, but Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods that they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. Just like the Israelites worshiping around that golden calf that led to the destruction of so many of the Israelites, that's what the pagans are doing in your neighborhoods, and that's what these meals are celebrating, and you're taking part in it. Paul lays down the challenge in verse 21. He says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Everybody has to decide where you want your fellowship to be. Do you want your fellowship to be with the Lord and his people, or do you want your fellowship to be under the power and influence and direction of demons. Life is that simple. It's the same challenge that Joshua laid before the Israelites as they entered into the promised land. This is what he said to them about the gods that tempted them in the wilderness and the one true God. Listen to what he says, beginning in verse 14 of Joshua 24. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And then at the end of this passage, Paul makes a statement that is meant, I think, to draw our attention back to the Old Testament imagery of marriage as a representation of our relationship as God's people with our God. That we are married to God. That we're in that kind of an intimate covenant relationship with him, spiritually speaking. 
And of course, the New Testament builds upon this. So this is the, the church being the bride of Christ, the bridegroom. And so Paul alludes to that in that last verse, verse 22, and he says, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Having reflected on the meaning of the Lord's Supper, that we are deeply, intimately, at the very core of our being, one with Christ, and therefore one with each other. What he's saying is that idolatry, then, is spiritual adultery. It's spiritual unfaithfulness to our bridegroom. It's very similar to the argument, and he uses very similar language back in chapter 6 when he was talking about literal adultery or literal sexual immorality. Listen to what he says back there, how he uses the same reason for fleeing sexual immorality. He says in verse 14 of chapter 6, And God raised the Lord and will raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute has become one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. You see, it's the same reason. Because of the grace that has acted in your life to bring you into intimate fellowship with Christ, run away from spiritual adultery, which is idolatry. Run away, flee. Well, as I wrap this up, I want to take a few moments to say how does this apply to us. If we were living in a Hindu country where there is literal idolatry or some other third world country where there's literal idolatry with actual figures where people actually bow down to shrines and things like that, then this would be easy to directly apply. But the danger in our Western supposedly advanced thinking is that we read all of the many, many, many condemnations of idolatry and exhortations to avoid idolatry in scripture and we think well that's not really relevant to me I don't have little statues around my house I don't build shrines I don't put candles next to statues and bow down before them and worship them I'm good there I've got that one covered don't have to worry about that well first of all Paul again remember Paul is preaching and teaching this to the church And if you understand what idolatry is, you begin to understand that in the church in the United States of America, there is a lot of what I would call theological idolatry. Theologically worshiping God, a God, who is a more of a figment of our imaginations than the God of the scriptures. That is spiritual adultery. When you modify, change, reinterpret what God's word says about who he is and what he's done for you. No matter whether you call it by the name of Christianity or not, what it really is is theological idolatry. Many who call themselves Christians are actually worshiping a man-made God, one in their own image, one that's easier to believe in, one that makes less demands upon them, one that's It's convenient to serve one that doesn't offend the culture. But there is an even more prevalent form of idolatry that has infected churches, has infected all our lives to one degree or another, and that's what Paul would call in Romans 1 creation idolatry. Worshiping the creature instead of the creator. 
Worshiping what God has made for us as a gift to us instead of worshiping him. If you were to ever come, if you've ever been in my office, you may have noticed that on my bookshelves I have a bunch of little statues. And they're actually little statues of famous sports figures that are some of my favorite players. Men like Roberto Clemente. I have a statue of Roberto Clemente. I have a statue of Andrew McCutcheon. I have a statue of Jimmy Rollins. I have a statue of Donovan McNabb. I have a statue of Franco Harris. But they aren't idols. And I didn't come under any conviction in studying this passage that I needed to go destroy those idols. They're not idols. I don't even know the men that they represent. I don't have any kind of relationship with the men that they represent. I don't trust in the men that they represent in any way. That's not idolatry. But I do do know that there have been many times in my life where I have made an idol of sports. Where I have looked to sports to give me what only God can give. I know people who live their lives worshiping the idol of sports. They get their sense of purpose and meaning in life from how well their team is doing or how well their favorite athlete is doing. They work all week so that they can afford to sit in their easy chair all weekend or to go to the stadiums and watch sporting events because that's where they find their real satisfaction and meaning and purpose in life. That's what gets them out of bed in the morning. They literally live and die with their team. A number of years ago, I heard about a Steeler fan who had a, his death wish, his wish upon dying, was to have his body displayed in the funeral home, not in a coffin, but in a lazy boy recliner, fully reclined, wearing his favorite Steeler jersey with a beer in one hand and pretzels in the other hand in front of a TV that was playing a videotape of, a, of one of the, the most famous uh, Steeler games. That's how he wanted to be remembered. That was his identity at death. That's what was most important to him. I laughed at first, but then I grieved over the foolishness of living for that. For other people, it's not sports. Maybe you think, well, I don't care about sports, so I'm okay. Well, for other people, maybe it's work. It's your career. That's the God that you serve. That's the idol that you're devoted to. That's where you get your sense of meaning and purpose in life and worth in life. That's where you get your satisfaction. For some people, it's alcohol or drugs. For some people, it's just friends, family members maybe, children that you serve and worship, or maybe your best friend or maybe your spouse. For other people, it's Simply dating and sex, that's what gets them out of bed in the morning. That's what they live for. That's where they find their ultimate meaning and purpose and satisfaction. For some people, it's money and possessions. For some people, it's whatever is most important to you that puts God in second place at best. The problem isn't the created thing, just like the problem in idolatry was never about the created statue. The problem lies with a thing or person that has taken God's place in your life, where your devotion lies. Tim Keller defines idolatry in this way. First of all, it's anything that's more important to you than God. Secondly, it's anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. And thirdly, it's anything that you seek in order to receive what only God can give you. And that should bring conviction to all our hearts. 
because we commit that kind of adultery regularly. The bottom line is that idolatry is honoring any created thing at the expense of honoring God. Why would we do this? Especially those in the church, those that have had the word of God presented to them faithfully and have seen the glory of God in scripture, this sovereign God who created all things out of the power of his word alone, the one who sustains all things by the power of his word alone, this glorious, beautiful God that we serve. Why would anybody choose to serve an idol before him? Well, first of all, it's because these man-made gods are tangible. Whatever they are in our lives, we can see them, we can taste them, we can touch them. And these gods satisfy on demand. We can turn the faucet and get what we want. We get to manipulate the god. He's like a candy machine. We pull the right levers, we get what we want. And thirdly, these man-made gods, they serve our agenda. We can be selfish and get our meaning and purpose selfishly. Ralph Waldo Emerson once said this. He said, a person will worship something. Have no doubt about that. We may think that our tribute is paid in secret in the deep, dark recesses of our souls, but it will come out. That which dominates our imaginations and our thoughts will determine our lives and our character. Therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we worship. For what we are worshiping, we are becoming. Idolatry, in whatever form it takes, is demonic, powerful, and dangerous. My beloved, flee from idolatry. Let's pray. Father, As your word has exposed the sin in our hearts, I pray that your spirit would also bring the comfort of the gospel. I pray that we would be brought again to the foot of the cross and see the eternal Son of God, the one who is fully God and fully man, hanging there, bearing the wrath that we deserve for these sins of spiritual adultery and whatever form of idolatry it has taken on. Thank you, Lord, that he's paid that price in full. Forgive us, we pray, and renew us by your grace. And instill in our hearts, as a result of our time in your word this morning, a deeper love for Christ and a purer devotion to him. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.